This morning we reach the, the final verses of the Song of Songs, and we began looking at these inspired lyrics of love way back in August, which seems like an eternity ago. Uh, but I hope that our reflection on God's Word has been a blessing to you. I, I know that it, it certainly has been for me, but not without challenge. I told you in the beginning of the study how intimidating it was to preach the Song of Songs, and I want you to know that was never not the case, all right? Uh, there were weeks that I would uh, read a passage and think to myself, yeah, I'm not real sure what that means. And then other weeks I would look at a passage and think, Oh my, I know exactly what that means. How am I supposed to say that in church? But the, the Lord has been faithful, and the song has been good. And, and I do believe that the words of the song does help restore the beauty of God's original design. It rescues the sanctity of marriage from all the deception, the, the redefining, the, the corruption that we see in the world today. It reminds us about the abundant goodness built within the boundaries of God's design. It, it gives us a glimpse of the truly redemptive power of covenant love. As we listen to the song, we hear the, the power of love to, to transform lives. We learn that marriage is a whole lot more about holiness than just the pursuit of, of happiness. It's a dance. It's a dance between two lovers who are dying to themselves in order to give themselves more fully to the other. It's a garden a place where, where love comes to life. But we also know it's not always easy because in marriage we also see how sin is exposed, how selfishness is revealed. But in the context of a covenant commitment of love, there's a, a safe place where we find healing and we find hope. It invites two people to, to grow in grace as they grow in love for one another. Always looking to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of both faith and love. As you saw on the screen a couple of times this morning in our singing, 1 John four nineteen, we love because God first loved us. See, Jesus is our example of unconditional love, of, of, of never-ending grace. He loves us at our worst in order to give us his best, and that is the foundation upon which the marriage relationship is built. That's why we said so many times in the song that we need to look beyond the beauty of the marriage relationship to see the glory of God's infinite love for us to see his inseparable love. It's eternally secure, a love that, that transforms us to become everything that he created us to be, knowing that, that one day we will, will be his bride, pure and flawless in his sight because of the saving work of Christ, and we will stand boldly before the throne and sing in worship that so far exceeds what happens here on a Sunday morning. It blind. Let's go to the Lord this morning before we open up his word. 
Father, we do come to you with humble hearts that desire to hear the truth of your word. We want that truth. We invite that truth, that that spirit of truth that you inspire as you speak these words into our hearts to truly transform our lives. The way we love each other in our marriages, the way we love each other in our families, the way we love each other in our communities, and ultimately, the way we love and receive love from you. So Lord, would you do that miracle work this morning as we open up your word through the power of your spirit? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to the last chapter in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. We'll pick up where we left off last. And let me begin by reading in verse 5. It says, Who is coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Beneath the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave you birth. Verse 5 begins with a question, that first part of verse 5. And I think it's a question from the daughters of Jerusalem. They they look into the distance and they see the husband and wife coming up from the wilderness. They witness her lovingly lean on her husband. I can just imagine her head on his shoulders. It's It's a beautiful picture of this sincere affection, this loving adoration that they have for one another. And their question draws our attention to this couple. It's like a zoom lens. It's intended to to enhance our focus to see these two people, this husband and wife. And then in the second half of the verse, the wife speaks. And I believe she's reminiscing, looking back to where it all began. When her husband was first brought into the world, when he was a, a blessing to his mother, and now is a blessing to his wife. And then she makes a remarkable statement beginning in verse uh, 6. Read that with me. She says, put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as severe as Sheol or the grave. It flashes, its flashes are as flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches in his house for love, it would be utterly despised. She says, put, put me like a, put, put a seal over my heart, a, a seal on your arm. For the wife, this seal is, is a mark of security. It's a sign of permanence. That seal on his heart is is his inward devotion. That seal on his arm is an outward declaration. It's much like the symbol of the wedding ring that we use today. An outward declaration of an inward devotion where each spouse says to the other, I belong exclusively and permanently to you. That's the seal that she's Promoting, But then, then I think she dives even deeper into this concept of covenant love. She's stirred by the depths of what this means. She says, for love is as strong as death. 
and jealousy as severe as the grave. Once again, she's using figurative language to help make her point. But I want you to notice, she didn't say that love is stronger than death. Because that wouldn't be true. As much as my, I love my wife, I can't keep her from dying. I can promise to, to have and to hold until death do us part, and I have, and I will. But her mortality is not in my hands. Instead, the woman is making this statement in order to magnify the loyalty of covenant love. Like death, this love is intended to be permanent, irreversible. Because covenant love is a lifetime commitment to, to have and to hold until death do us part. It's a bond that should not be broken. That's why Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And this love, she says, comes with a severe jealousy, which is not a kind of jealousy that's narrow-minded and self-serving. This is a jealousy that is protective, that is kind, that is secure. A love that ultimately doesn't tolerate a rival, which is why that same phrase is used to describe God's love for us. Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, it says, For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Because much like marriage, our relationship with God is intended to be exclusive. He wants to protect our heart from competing lovers, which the, which the Bible identifies as idols. Idols that steal our affection and bring destruction to our soul. That's why Paul says to, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who, raised, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You see, the coming wrath, is reserved for those who pursue other lovers, those who try to find hope outside of a relationship with God, looking for salvation apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And God is jealous because he knows that only Jesus can save our soul. That's the whole idea behind what we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, when it says there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. This is an exclusive relationship. See, God is not jealous because he is envious, as if we have something that he wants. He's jealous because he's protective, because only he has what we desperately need. Marriage, much like our relationship with God is intended to be permanent and exclusive. It is protected by that covenant commitment. It, it creates a safe place 
where we can fail and make mistakes, but yet still grow in love together as we learn to grow in grace. God created marriage to be a reflection of his infinite love for us. That's why the wife says in verse 7, no amount of water can quench this kind of love. No amount of money will entice me away from my lover. She belongs permanently and exclusively to him. And she finds safety in the seal of his promise to her. To put it in terms of the New Testament, this is a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Like it says in verse 7 of that chapter, this kind of love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. That's the kind of love that we see in the song. Look at how it continues in verse 9. Excuse me, verse 8. We have a little sister. She has no breasts. And what shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. This is kind of a strange couple of verses, isn't it? <laughs> but in these two verses, we are actually hearing from the brothers of the bride. And they're asking, how do we protect our young sister's innocence? How do we ensure the, her purity while she is young? But I'm personally not convinced that they actually have her best interests in mind. In fact, I think this may have more to do with preserving their own reputation. Because you'll remember, we ran into these brothers back in chapter 1, right? Chapter 1, verse 6, we read, my mother's son, so she's referring to the brothers, were angry with me. And they made me caretakers of the vineyards. In other words, they made their little sister do all the work. Which doesn't sound like they have her best interests in mind, does it? Which leads me to believe their question in verse 8 is actually more selfish than sincere. They were discussing a plan to deal with their sister's decisions. Because you'll notice they're not offering any guidance. They're, they're not offering any advice. They're responding to her decisions. And they really say, okay, there's two possible options. First, they said, if she is a wall... We will build a battlement of silver. And here they're using that word wall as a metaphor for her sexual purity because a wall is intended to be impenetrable. It is secure. Unlike a door, which is open and has easy access. So if her sister is a wall, she remains chaste and pure. We will proudly claim her as our own. We will build a battlement of silver, bringing attention to our sister, maybe even, I think, taking responsibility for her purity. But if she's a door, they will barricade her with planks of cedar. I think in their embarrassment, they will hide her from public view. So in the first case, they take credit for her chastity, but in the second, in the latter, they punish her for her impurity. They are simply responding to her decisions. 
So in my opinion, the, the brothers weren't actually trying to help out their little sister. As we saw back in chapter 1, I think this is more selfish gain. They're more worried about their own reputation than actually her well-being. So how does a young lady survive an environment like that? Will the dysfunctional family determine her future decisions? Let's read on. Look at verse 10. I was a wall. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Bel Hamon. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. My very own vineyard is at my disposal. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and 200 are for those who take care of its fruit. See, the, brother, the, the woman in this story didn't actually need her brother's protection. She took responsibility for her own well-being. She didn't let her dysfunctional family determine her choices. Instead, she says in verse 10, I was a wall, and that was my decision. And that decision, she says, and this is important, that decision brought peace into my marriage. And this is really, really important. To, to hear the heart of what the woman is communicating because she's saying that, that she willfully chose to live according to God's design. She was unmoved by her dysfunctional family. She didn't cave to the cultural pressures around her. She chose to honor the Lord and remain pure. And her obedience brought blessing into her marriage. And I want you to hear the heart of what is happening here. Because the woman is highlighting the treasure that we find when we put our trust in the Lord. She's describing the beauty that's built within the boundaries of God's design. The gift of his blessing when we believe in our hearts that his way is truly best. Because here's the unfortunate reality, we forfeit that blessing when we choose to go our own way. We simply cannot flourish as he intended as if we willfully walk outside of his will. Things like pornography, premarital sex, same-sex relationships, these are destructive because they are not what God intended. They exist outside the boundaries of God's design. Our selfish desires will always lead us down a path of destruction, but there is goodness built within the boundaries of what God originally intended. God is always inviting us to something better. So, with that being said, no matter where you are this morning, because you may not be where you know you need to be. And so let me just encourage you to take the opportunity in this place this morning to repent and to return to the Lord. Because here's the promise. Psalm 51 verse 7 says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you 
will not despise. God always welcomes the repentant, just like the prodigal son. He wants to restore. This is his desire. He wants to restore the reward of his blessing. He throws a party for the repentant when they return to him. But in the song, what we see is the the woman highlighting the blessing of her obedience. And she does so by comparing herself to King Solomon who had so many vineyards, such a a vast supply, that he had to hire attendants just to take care of them, which I think may be a commentary on the multitude of his wives. But in contrast, the woman's saying, my vineyard belongs to me. It's at my disposal, and I give it to the one my soul loves. She's saying, because I remain pure, I brought peace into our marriage because I belong exclusively and permanently to him. That's a gift that not any of King Solomon's riches could ever buy. So in the end, faithful obedience has a built-in reward. Now, look at those final two verses of the song, because here we see an exchange, the final exchange between the husband and wife. Verse 13, he speaks first and says, O you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. So the husband is calling out to his wife. She wants to be in his presence. She wants to hear his voice. So she responds in verse 14, hurry, my beloved. Be like a gazelle and a a young stag on the mountains of spices. She's inviting him to be with her. She's echoing his desire for affection. And then that's where the song ends. It's kind of a strange ending, isn't it? It's almost an ending without an ending. A conclusion that leaves you longing for for something more, like shouldn't they come together and embrace and love, and shouldn't that be the way the story ends, right? But I just wonder if the song's abrupt ending is intended to point us to something better. It feels unfair. Finished. And I think that's on purpose. As their longing for love continues, maybe, just maybe, it's pointing us to the only place where love is truly complete. the love our our soul longs for is ultimately found. So here's what I want us to do as we finish up this morning. I want to ask you to imagine a scene. And so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes here in a moment. And I'm going to read a passage from Scripture. And I want you to do everything you can to Imagine this scene in your mind and put yourself in this place as you hear this description. It's purposely not going to be on the screen, so don't look for it, okay? Just close your eyes and listen to these words from the book of Revelation.
Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of of mighty peals of thunder. Think of the crowd noise in the largest stadium in the world at its most exciting moment. And then in unison, you hear these words, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has been made ready. It was given to her to to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, For the fine linen is the the righteous acts of the saint. Those who are made righteous by the saving work of Christ. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The celebration when Jesus is joined together with those with whom his soul loves. And he said to me, these are true words. Open your eyes. Do you see it? We, we leave the lovers in the Song of Solomon with outstretched arms. But here in the biblical narrative, we picture this loving embrace with a glorious Savior. As, as, as you, the bride of Christ, are presented flawless in your perfection because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. He is the groom. And you as his people are the bride. And we are eternally secure in his love. Because in that moment that you put your faith in him, he put a seal on your heart. Just like we read in our passage, she was desiring this covenant promise, this this security of this seal, right? Well, when we entered into that relationship with faith in Christ, the very same same thing happens to us. Listen to Ephesians chapter one, verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, there it is, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of that passage that we just read in the book of Revelation. That's an eternal covenant commitment of love. That is a seal, a bond that cannot be broken because this is actually, unlike we see in the song, this is an actually a love that does have the power to overcome death. It has the power to overcome the curse of sin. Do you see how this is altogether different? Do you see how everything in the song is pointing us to what we see in Jesus Christ? I mean, listen to this in Romans 8, 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus Christ. Our Lord. So in a way, the ending of the Song of Solomon points us to the beginning of eternity. It invites us to live in 
hopeful anticipation of our heavenly reward, the the moment we are eternally satisfied with his infinite love. And we need to understand this morning that that is a love story that knows no end. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing to see not only the beauty of the covenant commitment of love that you designed from the beginning and filled it with an abundance of goodness and how we can see and be amazed at the gift that you've given us in that, but then also to look beyond the beauty of marriage, to see something better, a love that actually has the power to overcome death, a love that comes with a seal that lasts for eternity, a love that knows no end. And I just pray that in some small but significant way, we would get a glimpse and have an appreciation for that beautiful love this morning in ways that maybe we've never appreciated before. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. My hope and prayer is that as we've gone through the Song of Solomon, that is the message you've heard loudest. And I just want to remind you that for every moment of every day, your loving Savior is inviting you to dive even deeper into the depths of that love. And if you're in a good place and you feel that love, he's saying, hey, there's still more. Keep going. If you're in a hard place, he's saying, I promise something better. Put your trust in me. Either way, he's inviting you into the depths of that love. And I hope you hear that this morning.